Good morning, Miss Yo. We're going to be back at Revelations in chapter 2, reading verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Thanks, Jonathan. It's nice when scripture also sounds like a movie trailer. Very good. Makes me excited for the sermon, even more so. Um, My name is Josh Rosenthal. Some of you know me, some of you don't. Um, I was a part of the original group, my wife and I, before we had kids, of planting Missio. Been here for 11 years, uh, but haven't been actively involved since having kids, because who knows how to do anything when you have kids other than survive, uh, sometimes is what it feels like. So um, it's great to be up here. You'll also be glad to know in our pre-service meeting that if I go longer than 35 minutes, I will be muted, and um, regardless of where I'm at in the sermon. So listen early on, and if I just, if this feels like we're at the Oscars and the music starts, then that means I'm wrapping up. Um, I love naming things. I love naming sermons. I love naming songs, anything I can name, I love thinking about names. And so this one today is called The Nuance of Standing Between Empires and Remaining a People of God. Um, And if I would say the overarching idea that I have today is that when we find ourselves blending in with culture, denying our identity in Christ, the answer isn't simply to abandon the culture and walk away, it's to remain and be a part of bringing the kingdom into uh, our everyday lives. So over the next 35 minutes or less, uh, I'm going to bring to you sort of a case for that, that thesis, so to speak. It's been a long time since I've preached. Uh, I have a real love-hate relationship with preaching. Um, Nothing pushes me deeper into Scripture or to really anything. If I I have to teach it, if I get to teach something, it just pushes me deeper in because I want to be able to um, teach well. I I like the responsibility. I like carrying the weight um, of preaching of the, of the responsibility uh, for two reasons. One is that, it, again, it makes me go deeper into Scripture uh, to understand it better, to apply it to my own life uh, in fear of being up here and being hypocritical and, and, and telling you something that hasn't sort of permeated into to who I am. And the other reason is, is that usually if you see me up here on stage at, at this stage of life, um, it's either doing music <clears throat> or maybe doing this. And uh, I really love giving... Uh, Johnny or David or whoever um, is supposed to be up here. I love giving them a break. Uh, I did vocational ministry for 11 years, um, and the week in and week out grind of vocational ministry, just like any other job, I'm sure, um, can be hard. And it's just nice to know that someone was out there who wants to give you a break, and that was who I um, enjoyed, what, the role that I enjoy playing at this stage in my life. Um, ministry is not like building a house. It's not like at the end of every day, you can step back and look and see what you've done. Um, 
the work of vocational ministry, volunteer ministry uh, is a little bit more nebulous than that. And so it would be nice to know that you're actually accomplishing things, but in the world of ministry and, and vocational ministry and Johnny and Heather's role and Lydia's role, David's is how do you know if you're being successful? It's hard to know if you're being successful and, and how do you measure success? And I think in some ways that's how the church in the West has gotten in trouble because we've, we've tried to measure success. Success feels like something we want to uh, be. We want to be successful. And so we start putting these metrics in place that if we do X or Y, this number of people become believers or if we've baptized this number of people or giving is at this number, then we're successful. And it's just really hard to gauge success. And, you know, we want to be successful at our jobs and at our vocations. And so me being up here in a way is, is my way of communicating to, to Johnny or if I'm leading to communicate to David to, like, take space. Um, it's easy to get burnt out. Uh, do some work in getting unburnt out this week. And so a part of who well, me sitting here this week is uh, an expression of gratitude for Johnny. Um, in this season, while Heather's gone, especially, of, of preaching and, and the work that he's doing. Uh, and also just a hope that... Um, you know, some of his burnout can be undone. Because there's this reality of this weekend and week out grind that I could ask you, like, what did you have for dinner May 26th of 2008? You have no idea what you had. Or can you name one meal from 2008 that you ate, period? Uh, assuming most of you were alive then. And if you can't name that meal, the reality is, is that if you didn't eat, you wouldn't be alive. And I think this is sometimes like the, when, when like the dispensing of, of the truth of who God is going out, like this is a, a version of nutrition. This is, a, is, is food for your soul. It's, it's sustenance for your soul. Um, but we don't even necessarily always remember it. Uh, but we know that we couldn't have survived without it. And that's sort of the uh, paradox of the importance of ministry, that it feels dire, it feels urgent. And also this other side of it is that you don't even remember any of it, maybe from last year or maybe from the end of today. Uh, the studies would show that you remember, you'll remember maybe a sentence uh, of what I said, and hopefully that one sentence uh, is something that's useful to you. And then two years from now, you won't even remember my name. And so this is the, the challenging part of ministry um, and why I love being up here and why I'm here today, uh, what motivated me. Um, is, is gratitude. So we've been in Revelation. Um, funny enough, I mean, growing up, I grew up in, in Lubbock, Texas. I got here 19 years ago, but the, the Southern Baptist in me from Texas was uh, um, annoyed, a strong word, scared uh, when Johnny said we were going to do Revelation. Because the reality of Revelation, I, I feel like I can better reconcile war in the Old Testament than I can what in the world is happening in the book of Revelation as I understood it, up, really up until Johnny started uh, looking at it in a, in a new way um, for me, new way for me. Uh, you know, in, in Texas, it was all about thinking, about, looking at Revelation was all about, okay, this is a predictive book that's going to tell us how things are going to end and exactly how it's all going to roll out. And uh, Johnny alluded this to a few weeks ago, which I was grateful, like certain things that they're describing, like, I don't know if they're bugs or what they are, and, and today we're interpreting them as, oh, yeah, those are like Apache helicopters, and those are the things that are going to take this out, and this is going to be the date that it happens. And it's just like, I, I can't connect, couldn't connect the dots on the usefulness of that. And then nothing that I had seen was more divisive in some circles than, are we going to be here for the end? Are we not going to be here for the end? At what point do we get taken up? And Johnny did a great job of, of making light of 
everything that came with Left Behind and the Left Behind series of just like, it's, it's so unnecessarily confusing in my opinion as I was reading and understood it to that point. And to me, the bigger question was one that I'd heard best put by Richard Rohr, was that before we start asking um, what does life look like after death or how do we get taken out of here, let's ask, the, let's ask the question, what does life look like before death? Is there life to be had before death? So for me, I look at this and say, and, and through Johnny's, uh, starting to, the way that he started to open it up for us three weeks ago, is that Revelation is a book about, really for us today, and it is answering a question of um, how do we live today uh, it is answering a question is, of what does life look like before death, that there is life before death. We're not just holding on, doing the best we can because the real uh, best possible everything that we'll ever experience is something that happens in the afterlife or after we die. Like, what does it look like to be alive now? So Revelation is not, is not a book of predictive prophecy. It's not trying to tell us the future. It is prophecy, but it's a sort of truth-telling prophecy that's somewhat confrontational to our lives today, where we sit. And at the time, and uh, where we're looking here, these uh, opening letters to the churches uh, of John's time, um, it was meant to be extremely confrontational to them to say, hey, who Jesus is and who you are intended to be is not what you are, uh, is not who you are currently. And so with each one, with the, with the level of criticism and a level of confrontation, John is speaking a prophetic word, um, confronting them and calling, calling them to change. It's an unmasking of the world around us and informing us of how to live today. Johnny put it this way also, Revelation is about Jesus, from Jesus, and only makes sense if we read it through the lens of Jesus, which to me feels very safe, like that's a place that I can be as we start to look at this. I, I couldn't possibly take these words in this book and interpret it in a way for you that was the locust is a helicopter and all this sort of stuff. Uh, but to say, hey, this is about Jesus. It's from him. It only makes sense if we stay really close to him and how we look at it. And even, even there also, it can be useful to us and uh, how we live today. So uh, Johnny had worked through uh, the introduction, uh, early text, and then last week the 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 letter to the church of Ephesus, and today we're in the letter uh, to the church of Smyrna, which is also a small town in Tennessee, so it's hard to readjust because the city of Smyrna in, uh, in Rome was a city that was known for its loyalty to, to Rome, to the empire. Um, it, there was a lot of economic power there, a lot of political power. It was a beautiful city. Um, and there were a lot of people there who were, who were the people of God who were starting to maybe, maybe the right word is collude, collude with the economic powers of the time, collude with the political powers of the time. Um, maybe with economic power, they were sort of, sort of colluding with the, the unions uh, or the temples, uh, which this is crazy. The temples uh, where the Jews worshipped were also banks um, somehow. And the, the officials and the local trade guilds, like there were the, all these sort of paths in which the people of God were starting to sort of blend in with the empire of Rome, which was very easy to do. Uh, it was the easy thing to do was to blend in with Rome, but through that blending in, also they were starting to marginalize and persecute Christians, probably intentionally and unintentionally, um, as they were doing it. And, and then also in their collusion with sort of the, the political powers. And what John is saying here is don't be afraid 
to remain the people of God. Don't be afraid. In light of everything that's happening in Rome, in light of the sort of uh, the way that an empire can have pressure on you to do a certain thing, um, if you have ears, you should hear this. We want, it wants you to hear this, church in Smyrna. If you have ears, hear this. Uh, don't be afraid. Christ will be victorious. Rome will not be victorious. So your allegiance to Christ um, would allow you to um, behave in a different way. You don't have to look like the rest of Rome in order to be safe, in order to be okay. So any consequences, my son's saying, Daddy, that's cute. Any consequences um, that you might have as a result of following Christ um, in this way and and being the people of God um, are sort of offset by what Eugene Peterson in his interpretation of this scripture calls the life crown, like like the real possible the best possible life for you, a real life for you that is good, good in the deepest sense, is one where you remain the people of God, where you continue to have the values um, that Christ has put in you. By you maintaining those values, uh, that is the best possible life. That's this life crown, this, this uh, hope of the best possible thing for you comes by remaining, remaining in him and following his values and not, not looking like Rome. So Rome, uh, obviously extremely powerful. Um, understanding really what an, em- an empire is is probably helpful. Or how I mean, we, we realize that em- an empire is this thing that has a tremendous amount of power, uh, maybe not inherently bad, but just a lot of power. And so the reality of a lot of empires is that they can be very bad. Um, they can be evil. Right here, I'm making no judgment on that. I'm just saying there's a lot of power uh, when you participate in your um, uh, in this in whatever empire that you find yourself in, and so I think the way that I've thought about it is that there's just a lot of downward pressure from an empire for you to do certain things and for you to value certain things. Um, in America, if we could call America an empire, uh, there's a, there's you know the two cars in every garage and like a turkey in every oven or whatever that saying was from like the ni- late 1920s, like this hope of that, there's a downward pressure on that to say, like, what it means to be in this empire is that we're going to be financially successful, we're going to have certain houses, we're going to have certain cars, we're going to be in certain things, and good or bad, we just kind of find ourselves in it. And again, I'm not making a judgment on that right now, I'm just making an observation to say there's, just a, there's a constant downward pressure um, from whatever empire you find yourself in, whether it be America, whether it be jobs, it can be a number of different things that sort of act like this, this empire that has a downward pressure on you that would force you to act a certain way. So the work of the Jesus follower here is to try to resist the magnetism of the empire, which is almost impossible, I would say, without some version of some lens to help you step back from the empire. But, but the nature of being involved in an empire or involved in a culture is that you're so sort of tethered and woven into it that it's hard to see out of it. So he's saying to resist the magnetism of the empire, and rather than follow its values, stay where you are and bring the values of the kingdom with you into where you are. But it would be easy to either lean in fully to the empire or resist it entirely. Uh, it's really hard, that in-between, and that's where I think the, the title of today's being the nuance of standing between empires and remaining a people of God, that 
the answer, as I'm seeing it at this, after spending the week with this, um, is to say that it would be really easy to either just fully lean in and surrender to the empire that I find myself in, or it'd be really easy to just resist the empire that I'm in and say I'm completely out. Uh, both of those are easy, and I think both of those are the safe way out. Um, nuance is a very difficult way to navigate anything, and possibly, in my opinion, the only way to navigate where we are. So it'd be easy to either resist or fully lean in. And so for today, uh, with this sort of introduction of, of Revelation 2 and some, some light around how this sort of like triangulation, if, if you look at the collusion with economic power, collusion with political power, you can sort of triangulate that when you're leveraging economic power, leveraging political power, you're marginalizing people, uh, you're pushing people to the edges, um, you're uh, really becoming all about yourself. Uh, to say that what's probably happening in a lot of ways is that the church inadvertently has started persecuting the church. People in the church have, have blended in so much with the empire that they're now persecuting the church. And so you can look and say that like, there's people being taken advantage of. If you think about a banking system that's in a temple, and if you think about you know, this idea of usury, of, of, of extending unsecured debt um, to people in the church, and who knows what they're buying, like, there's, just, there's so many ways that the people are getting taken advantage of, and people in the church are seeing that, hey, I can make some money if I lean in and do that, and if I have money, I can take better care of my family. If I take better care of my family, like, that's, that's good, right? But if I got that money from uh, marginalizing somebody more, that's bad, right? And so then you see, like, you've got an empire over here where you fully resist it and say, okay, I'm not going to participate in that system at all, uh, or I'm going to completely participate and marginalize that person, um, leaves us to uh, not... Im- to to step away from and not fully lean into the nuance, which I think is the necessary way to navigate this. Our culture is not in a good spot right now for nuance. Either you're in or you're out. Either you're all for this or you're all against this. And the reality is that in everything, there's some third way on, in everything. There's not just you're in or you're out. There's this unfortunate, especially for certain personality types, there's this unfortunate gray area that exists in a lot of things that requires a lot of questions and a lot of navigating of nuance. And so for me, I wanted to sort of bring my story into this of, of how, uh, how I've done that and, you know, through my years in Utah. So I moved here 2002. I came here for spring break of 2002, one month after the Olympics, and loved it so much, dropped out of college, didn't need much of an excuse for that. I was basically just attending. I was basically just on the rolls anyway. Uh, so dropped out of South Plains College in Leveland, Texas, and moved on to uh, Utah. Came here for the summer, was an intern at um, Hidden Valley Presbyterian Church. It was less than a year old, so I still considered it, even though I wasn't a part of that church plant from day one, it was a church plant, you know, that we were, uh, I was a part of early on. I was the world's worst youth pastor, and I was doing music as well. Did that for about a year and a half. I got so much anxiety, and I burned out really, uh, you know, by the end of that, I was just burnt to a crisp. Kind of retreated back to Lubbock for a season to, uh, ultimately, in my end, that retreat back to Lubbock is what showed me how much I loved Salt Lake, and so I quickly came back. Uh, When I came back, I started working for a church, South Mountain. They thought I had done such a great job as a youth pastor at Hidden Valley that I became the youth pastor at South Mountain, 
and I was, uh, you know, in, in a church like South Mountain, growth is something that's important. How big, and I, my joke always was that I grew my youth group from 35 kids to three kids. I was very talented. Um, there were times where I was just so frustrated that I would walk out uh, in the middle of the youth group gathering because I just couldn't, couldn't take it. And my excuse was that I was trying to teach these high school kids how to be adults and have some accountability, but the reality is, is that I was just, uh, you know, constant panic attacks and anxiety from having some sort of responsibility around what to do with high school kids. When I was a high school kid, I wasn't good at hanging out with high school kids, and so anyway, so that's what I was doing. I was also the, the worship uh, pastor there, so I was the youth pastor, worship person, and college intern, and I don't know how that works. Uh, but we were big into slashes there, so you just did a lot of things, and, and that was the, the time that Becky had wrapped up at the University of Oklahoma, moved up here, and we were, we'd just gotten married. So came into South Mountain. It was a few years old, but it was like this thing. It was, it was the beginning of the end, and so as a part of that church plant, um, at the end of its like infancy stage before it was really starting to push to grow, and then with that church, we went and tried to plant a downtown church, and... Uh, that didn't end up working out so well. So, tried it for a little while and decided not to move forward with it. Then we went and planted a church in what's now called Daybreak. It was before Daybreak, I think, had built anything out there. It was effectively just South Jordan. Uh, and then I, I, was, I was done with church plants. And then in 2010, you know, I really loved Salt Lake City. And so when there was a lot of people who were trying to plant churches in 2010. And I thought, oh, come on, guys, don't come here and ruin it. This place is too good. And so I met Kyle thinking, hey, you've just moved here a week ago. You're here to plant a church. My thing was just to send a, send a shot across his bow and say, hey, just at least don't screw up. Don't screw up Salt Lake. We like it too much. And I actually really liked Kyle. So we leaned in, and I thought we'd never be a part of another church plant. And, and uh, we leaned in fully, and I was on staff here for, for a number of years. So between all of those, we were part of five church plants here in Salt Lake. Uh, Simultaneously, I was always bivocational. I have to have a lot of calls on my attention. I released nine albums as a musician, was traveling a lot as a musician, and also sort of anchored in local churches here, sort of in and out. Um, my wife was in the food scene. Uh, we together wrote three books. I wrote one with just my name, one with her name and my name, and then she wrote one with just her name, a uh, cookbook. Started several businesses while we've been here. Out of sort of that food stuff, we started... Um, I think, yeah, the first one was La Barba Coffee, which was a lot of people out of Missio. We started uh, La Barba out of Missio and then grew it from there uh, out, out of there as it sort of started to become what it was. Creek Tea, a lot of it actually just came out of conversations with Johnny and I. Um, Seabird Bar was one that we started. Then we started Yoko, or we, we acquired Yoko Ramen, started Yoko Taco. And my wife's business, Vintage Mixer, she was, she was a blogger, food blogger in like 2007, 2008. Um, started reviewing restaurants in 2009 um, as SLC Foodie and that, with the idea of just like, there was finally this food thing that had been happening around the country was happening in Salt Lake and we were jumping in to be a part of that and to cheer those people on and, and, and try and spread the word and make all the people who were living in Salt Lake, we wanted them to be excited about living in Salt Lake because we loved it so much and a lot of people would treat it like their two to three year middle management death sentence that they just kind of had to come here, had to be here, nothing cool about it, and they're going to get out of here. And we were shouting like, oh, this place is great. You should stay. And now I think too many people have stayed, and now it's getting a little bit big. And uh, we regret that a little bit, but not much. I uh, started this 
small business consulting and accounting firm called C-Level Insights, the hope of helping small businesses. Um, and then currently uh, have kind of got out of all of that and we've been focusing on trying to buy properties that are worth preserving and keeping so that uh, all these somewhat ugly apartments that are being built around the city and some cool stuff is being demolished. We wanted to be a part of like buying some of the stuff that's worth saving um, and, doing, and doing enough things to it so that when we sell it someday, the next buyer isn't thinking about demolishing, they're thinking about keeping. And so just to restore some of the, some of the stuff that's, that's uh, the, the real estate that, that exists here. So we've had our hands in a lot of different things. And we have loved this city. And we've sort of like given uh, who we are like up until like pre-pandemic. It's just like just completely giving everything that we have then kids came along and, and we started to get a little bit more focused on, on home. But why am I telling you this? Because uh, I've danced in and out of colluding with the empire a lot. Um, intentionally, unintentionally. And I'm here to tell you from the experience that the answer of how to exist in between empires is really unromantic. It's really unsatisfying, um, let's say, to an Enneagram 4. Um, it's not this thing that as you do it, that you're going to be able to feel this great fulfillment for what it is on its surface. You'll have a really hard time doing it, uh, but you'll be very fulfilled like on this greater level of saying, here's where Jesus exists between the empires. If my loyalty is to Jesus, not to this empire, not to that empire, the reality is that I can stay involved, I can stay where I am in my you know, quote-unquote empire or culture or whatever it is and bring Jesus into that spot. Very nuanced. But when I was when I was here at Missio, and I was I was half time, whatever that means in ministry, I was half time here at Missio. And Kyle went on vacation, the the guy who planted the church originally. And when he went on vacation, my friend who's the pastor at uh, Capital Church, we were just catching up, and I was like, man, I'm so burned out. Which has been was the story of my 11 years in ministry. I've just burnt out all the time. Everybody, I, I thought everybody must hate ministry because I'm because I'm burnt out all the time. I wasn't very self-aware, or you know that different people have different giftings, and, and so I, the, the test came back and basically said, "Hey, there's one thing that you, if you do it, you will be burnt out all the time," and it was ministry. And I was like, "Oh, I've been doing this for 11 years. No wonder I'm burnt out all the time." It's not everybody. It's not that ministry is awful. It's that this is not who I am. And so coming from West Texas, where like sort of the pinnacle expression of faith is to be in vocational ministry, I was a little bit excited that finally something objective told me you should get out of this. And then I was also terrified of saying, hey, but this is the easy way for me personally. This is the easy way for me to be a Christian. It's to just be on staff, to be a professional Christian and take a paycheck for it. This is the easiest way to navigate life for me because it was familiar, but also because who I am as a Christian, it didn't need to be what I did. It could just be on my business card. And that was all it was. I hand you my business card. Here's what I am. I'm a pastor. So the big question for me was, if ministry was killing, why had I been doing it for 11 years? I think I had some gifting in the area of ministry. Uh, I I enjoyed music. I enjoyed preaching. I I enjoyed volunteer coordinating um, to a degree, I mean, we did. We were a mobile church at Missio for the first three years, and so set up and tear down every week was a grind. 
A lot of people got burnt out by that, and we tried to solve for that with various rhythms of setting up and tearing down, but it's nearly impossible to, to not get burnt out from setting up sound systems and stages every week. But I will say it, was, it would be easier to abandon culture. It would be easier for me to just fully abandon it than to figure out this nuance of how does ex-pastor guy become business guy and entrepreneur and start things. And so I thought, here, here's some examples of me trying to dance in between, and not like Adrian Fry dance, like we both look different when we dance. One is better than the other. Uh, but how do you exist or live between empires and remain, try and remain loyal to Jesus? And with the answer, in my opinion, being embracing the nuance. I have some examples uh, in my work life and hoping that this also resonates with you uh, as you contemplate how do, how, do you, how do you come back and not be like the Smyrna church um, that's colluding with the empire, that's colluding with its culture and inadvertently marginalizing or intentionally marginalizing people or specifically the Christian church. So I, I look at um, last May, I, uh, I was still in charge of La Barba Coffee and George Floyd had just been murdered, um, and all of that uh, that came with that was happening. And there was a lot of pressure, um, just observational, not being judgmental, just to say there's, there was pressure on every business in Salt Lake, every business around the world. Who are you in light of what happened? In light of Black Lives Matter, who are you? Uh, are you with us? Are you against us? Where do you stand? There's already that sort of black or white language Either you're with us or you're against us. And out of the gates, and I think talking to a lot of business owners, uh, as soon as it happened, it's like, hey, what do, what do we do? Like, this is a really big issue, and, we're, and we need to have our stance on it. In 24 hours or less of when it happened, we need to formulate this really complex response to it. And so I think out of um, a, a sincere desire to do the right thing, I, we put out some statements at La Barba. I was driving that. I reached out to all the owners, like, hey, guys, who are we? Like, we've got till tomorrow. We have to act fast because right now it's fast. So we've really got to put our heads together here. In light of everything that's happened, who are we? And so we put out a statement really quickly. We got it out there uh, by what we believe in time. But here's what feels gross about it is that, and speaking for me, from my business that I was in charge of, is that you put it out there really fast because if you didn't, the whole statement at the time of silence is violence. Like, if you don't say something, then you are against what's going on. And for me, as a, uh, sorry to use Enneagram language, as an Enneagram 5 who is a slow processor, who thinks through everything for a very long time, 24 hours is a panic attack. If I need to get out, some, if I need to formulate something as deep as that so quickly, it is a panic attack waiting to happen for me. And I'm going to make a mistake. Or at least that's my fear. I'm going to put out something that I'm going to regret. So we put out something very quickly. I think we checked all the appropriate boxes of what it needed to say, how we were trying to position ourselves. But what was hard was that businesses were using what happened in May, what happened in Minnesota, as a way of keeping revenue okay. And to me, I'm looking at that and saying, hey, if I'm, if I'm in that nuance of this downward pressure coming on me and saying, hey, if the downward pressure is coming on me, who am I going to be in light of this downward pressure? Um, 
to step back and say, wait, but I, I, I've got to figure out where the kingdom is here. And what, it, what do we do? And so we put out this really strong initial statement. And then after a few days of processing, which is what, what I have to do, I came back and thought, I think I was just trying to protect revenue. I don't know. I literally, it happened so fast. I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do here. I engaged with Johnny quite a bit. Um, and so after thinking about it, we thought, I don't know that this is, I don't know that this is the best, but I know that the, the kingdom for me here in this is to bring all of my employees together and let's just, let's talk about it because I don't know how to talk about it. I hadn't, I hadn't talked about it before. And so we engaged, Johnny came, Johnny brought some friends and I brought all of my employees and there was this mandatory employee meeting and we did it out there early on in the pandemic, like so many things that we're trying to solve for and making sure the chairs are spaced, but also uh, addressing an important topic. And I'm not here to tell you that we got the answer right. I'm here to say that the answer is found more so in nuance. Uh, The kingdom is found more so in nuance. So again, hear me say, I'm not trying to tell you that we nailed the answer, uh, that we got it right. I think I'm here to say that if we don't ask the question of where is the kingdom in this and then give ourselves the space to find it, and sometimes there's urgency and we have to find it quickly, uh, you have to solve for that. And there's, So there's some of you who were an employee of a company and you were asking specific things of your business. And there, there were certain business owners who were in charge of things and they were trying, uh, they were trying to figure it out. It's an unfortunate uh, is an unfortunate thing to have to, for the first time, be thinking about it that day. But at the same time, uh, it drove us to think about it. The next one was the mandatory, the push for mandatory $15 minimum wage. Uh, in the industries that I had been in where, that I'm no longer on point for or managing, but at the time, it's, this $15 minimum wage discussion is front and center. It is the discussion. The employees that we had at one point, as many as 125 employees, 95% of them were within this discussion of uh, what do we pay, how do we pay a, a living wage? And we'd always ask that question, how do we pay the most possible money? But if one side is saying it has to be $15 and the other side is there should be no minimum wage, um, where we're at is saying, like, as a small business, like we were trying to find, like, okay, the kingdom is... How do I give dignity to the people that work for me? Uh, but I can't, I can't afford $15 minimum wage. If we paid that, we'd actually have to lay off half the people. Is that what we should do? Uh, if we laid off half the people, could we actually get everyone to 15? If so, I think everyone would have to work 50 to 55 hours a week. Is that what we do? Or, hey, how do we try and institute some version of something that helps pay for college? Because we hope that you're not... At the time, I would hope that your, your career ambition is not to be a barista at La Barba when you're for 50 years. And so if, this, if you're just passing through, uh, are there other things that I can do? Because I can't afford the $15 minimum wage. And so the idea was, uh, hey, there's an either-or thing. Either, you, either you're for us and you pay it or you're against us and you marginalize us by paying the current state minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. Um, so the question had to be, what does the kingdom look like here? And the reality that we would find is that it's, it was different for every single person that worked for us. Uh, 
Some people just wanted to work 10 hours a week, make a little bit of extra cash. Some people were recently divorced, working 45 hours a week and utterly dependent on tips. So where things are landing, you know, society, just as a caveat to say that in that nuance in the middle, um, if you can afford it, if you're at a coffee shop, as someone who formerly owned one, a coffee roasting company, tip $1 per person behind the bar if you can afford it. And if you want to see the kingdom in there, check yourself next time you're so frustrated that you refuse to tip. Interesting thing about coffee is that you tip before you've gotten the product as opposed to sitting at a restaurant when you tip after you've got it, uh, after you've received the service. But restaurant minimum wage, $2.85 an hour, just so you know, that's what they make. Um, at our businesses, we've tried to do minimum wage closer to eight, but the reality is that eight is unsustainable. Everyone in that service industry is utterly dependent on your tips. Um, they are not okay without your tips. The tips aren't the value add. The tips is the means of survival for them. And so in the, the nuance of, okay, these people are working for me. These people are helping me grow a business. And this business, I've sold this business now because of these people who have worked for me. And so have I marginalized them and taken advantage of them so that I can sell my business and go do other things? Uh, these, this is the nuance. These are the questions. Uh, again, I'm not bringing perfect answers. Wouldn't it be great if they could make $20 an hour, $25 an hour? Servers can get up there. There are certain fine dining restaurants where servers are making two to maybe $300 an hour. That's few and far between, and those, those people can be career. But... Your local coffee shop, especially right now, the, uh, the minimum wage coming from the company is not gonna, can't be $15. But uh, they are utterly dependent on your tips. Another example is when I sold one of the companies that I had that I really thought that I could have sold it for more had I just kind of listed it on the open market. But instead, there were some people who really wanted it. And I knew that they didn't have what the open market could have paid for it. And so the question was, was in this nuance of what's possible, do I just go after the most possible money? Is money the thing that matters? Or what is the thing that matters? Is this thing over here of like the, well, the well-being of all of the employees who'd worked for us previously? Or the well-being of the other people who started the business with me at La Barba? We had 10 people who owned that business. Uh, how do we take care of everybody in the entirety of a transaction? So if, you're a, if you are a business owner, and you are doing a lot of transactions, uh, a lot of times the opening posture, especially in real estate, which has been a really hard industry for me to transition into because people in real estate are fighting, like on average, they are fighting for their, their piece of the transaction. They want the most possible money for themselves, and it always feels so, and maybe this is me bordering on the edge of millennial, but the, the last thing I want is a combative sort of business thing going on of, hey, you're fighting for this and you're going to get this at my expense or I'm going to fight for this and get it at your expense. The kingdom is found in that nuance of saying, hey, how do you win? How do I win? And wait a second, it's not just you and me. Like, what are all the consequences of what we're trying to do in this, I'm calling it a transaction, in this business matter or whatever? Like, there's consequences all around. And so let's pause and stop just thinking about us two and let's think about, hey, there's people that live in these apartments or, hey, there's someone that lives in this house right now. H how are they doing? What is, what are, are they okay? Are you going to, if you buy this, are you going to remove them from this place? What are you going to, how do you do that? How do you, how do you, how do you navigate that? The reality is that the, 
the entirety of the discussion cannot, if it fits, I would say if, you, if the answer to any of these things I'm putting out there to you fits on a bumper sticker, uh, then you have not thought about it. Um, nothing fits on a bumper sticker that truly answers or solves anything. Um, everything warrants a discussion. And I think some of the stuff that I'm saying, probably either, especially if you're not like in business, maybe you're in the nonprofit world, it's probably a little bit gross to even think about like, oh, how did, like all this stuff happening or uh, anyone in that industry is always taking advantage or if you're in real estate, you're just greedy or if you're in coffee, you're, t- you're marginalizing farmers in the third world. And the reality is, is that if it fits on the bumper sticker, if it's so concise that you think you can sum it all up in one sentence, you probably are not leaning into the nuance. And in that nuance is, I think, where the kingdom is. Uh, gosh, there was a point in my consulting firm that we had that we had a client that paid us a lot. Probably could have just gone on cruise control, but we didn't want to because if we had gone on cruise control and just taken the paycheck and not added any value, I think... To me, it was starting to feel like stealing, and so it was better for us to say, let's just walk away from this client as quickly as possible. And probably another hard one was the, uh, where there was nuance was closing Creek Tea, beginning of the pandemic. It was a really difficult dis- decision. It's, it was the right decision. It was a hard thing to do uh, because a lot of, you build a lot of dreams into that, and candidly, a lot of people lost a lot of money. And so... My wife and I were trying to figure out, like, how do, we, how do we navigate the closing of a business at a time where there's a, an acceptable excuse, the pandemic? Who's going to argue with that? Especially a non-business owner, it's easy to say pandemic because it's just so many question marks. Like, yeah, you're right, the pandemic is why you're closing it. But there's still a wait, especially when you're the, in the driver's seat of raising the money and people writing you checks and all that, and then to say, hey, we're closing it down. Um, that we tried to figure out like how everyone's going to lose here. How do, we, how do we help some of the folks who are going to lose, lose as little as possible? We had a landlord who was gracious to us. All of the owners of Creek Tea were gracious. It was just a hard thing to navigate, but it just also wasn't. It was another one of those things. It's not just black and white. Here's how you do it. Well, hey, the revenue's not coming in. See y'all later. It was, hey, it's not working out. Let's all meet. Let's talk. Here's my ideas. Here's how I think we move forward. Here's how I think we lessen the financial pain on the investors, and now let's, let's try and move forward. But it for sure wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy answer, and there's, there's no way that fits on a bumper sticker. So I guess what I'm trying to help you answer here is how. So how is Christianity to me? Without answering the question how in any of this, um, we... Uh, Christianity is just like a set of rules, right? How is what makes it a way of life. And so this, the how on this one is not um, simple. It's not hard necessarily either. It just requires more. It requires more leaning in. It requires a lot of grace for each other. It requires that you give a lot of grace to yourself, um, you know, if you found anything that I was saying here where you're like, oh, that's gross, or I don't like that, or you didn't word that correctly, like, just to question, to push back a little and say, hey, give, are you giving me grace in how I'm doing this? Like, if we're going to lean into the nuance, especially together as a community, there has to be a discussion around, hey, we, there's, we can't do anything if you're not honest. And so if we're, 
if we're afraid to have the discussion, if we're afraid to lean into the nuance, then let's not pretend like we're going to lean into it and pretend like we're going to have a hard discussion about something. Like the hard stuff of life to navigate through requires honesty and it requires that in that honesty, there's a, a give and take of grace for one another. So I think as, we, as I wind this down here, I'll say, so what do you do? You allow each situation to be unique. You don't be an ideologue. An ideologue is someone who maybe if you tell me what you think about abortion, you tell me what you think about abortion. If you're ideological in some way, I could then tell you, okay, here's what you think about this. Here's what you think about this. Here's what you think about this. And if you're like, yep, that's what I think about everything, I would just push back and say, allow each thing to be its own thing in your life. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Don't align with something over here simply because you align with something over here. So what do you think about $15 minimum wage? If you believe, let's say on the left side of the spectrum, that you believe that there should be a $15 minimum wage, and you say that, and then I say, okay, that means you're pro-choice. I would say, if that is true of you, to, push, to step back and look at every topic and everything in your life and ask questions about that thing and see where the kingdom exists in that thing and where you exist with the kingdom inside that thing. The horribly unromantic answer is to look for the kingdom in the nuance. There's nothing in that that goes on Instagram. You're not going to be hailed as some uh, amazing person for deeply questioning something that a lot of people hold dear. If you're told this is how you have to think about social justice and this is what one side of the spectrum says is what the other side of the spectrum says, and you're finding yourself kind of landing in here because you're saying, hey, for me, in my life, the way that I am with Jesus and the way the kingdom is coming together, like I'm landing about here. That's a really long Instagram post, and it doesn't necessarily get you likes, doesn't get you dislikes. It's just saying it's just not quick and easy. John is warning the church in Smyrna to stop blending in. Stop being afraid. Because on the other side of this, like you can lean into these things. You can bring the kingdom into these things. The kingdom can break through in this world around you. You think that you're okay, but you're actually not okay. You're colluding with the empire. Or look for, so for you to look around and say, hey, where is the downward pressure of the empire that I found, find myself in? Dictating how I think. And in that, bring the kingdom into that thinking. And maybe you think the exact same way after you bring the kingdom in. Maybe you don't, though. But with the ultimate goal being that you would find worshiping Jesus in that spot, uh, that you would be able to find that in every topic. Don't shy away from it because you're afraid, and don't go all in and think just like everyone else because you're afraid. Because the truth is, is what, and what we're seeing here in the book of Revelation is that Christ is victorious. The victory is his, and that ultimately, that's what we're leaning into because of what Jesus has done. We too are victorious. So today, back to the title, the nuance of standing between empires and remaining a people of God. Can you stand in that sort of in-between space and remain a people of God?
one who loves what he loves, cares about what he cares about, asks hard questions, isn't afraid. So I'll finish with what I started with. Here was my, my target thesis was, when we find ourselves blending in with the culture and denying our identity in Christ, the answer isn't simply to abandon the culture and walk away. It's to remain and be a part of bringing the kingdom into your once empty world. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would both be like the church in Smyrna and not be like the church in Smyrna. Lord, may we be a church that leans in hard to the city. May we love Salt Lake City. Um, but also may the downward pressure that comes from uh, the empire that we find ourselves in at whatever level, city, state, nation, may that downward pressure not be the thing that shapes what we do. But Lord, may you give us perspective on our culture, give us perspective on the empire that we find ourselves in, and help us find that nuance in between the exaggerated sides of, the, of every argument it seems right now. Lord, may we lean into your victory today. We know that Jesus, that throughout the book of Revelation, we will see you as victorious. Even when we're terrified, we're terrified to talk about certain issues or terrified to have certain opinions on things. God, may we lean into you and that Jesus' victory would be our victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Miss Hill, we're going to continue worshiping. Um, when you're ready, we've, we've brought the tables back, and so we're going to do communion at the table. So you'll notice that there are communion elements on the table. You can come, gather on the table, take a moment to pray, or you can take those elements back to your seats, depending on what you feel most comfortable with. We gather at this table that is at the center of our gatherings every single week because it is the center of our faith. Because we believe that what we do in this moment, at this space, is, like what Josh said, it is finding the kingdom in the midst of strange and inhospitable places. In fact, it is laying a table for our enemies in the midst of strange and inhospitable places because that's the way Jesus brings his kingdom. Not through coercion, not through force, not through shame, not through judgment, but by laying a table that we might find ourselves at home. And so we do the same every single week. We gather at the table to find ourselves welcomed home so that we might be a people who no matter where we go, no matter what pressure we feel, that we could be a people who welcome others home. So Missio, when you're ready, we invite you to the table to practice finding the kingdom, to practice establishing the kingdom, to practice being welcomed into the kingdom. So when you're ready, come to the table and continue worshiping with us.